I pray that together as the body of Christ, we could worship the risen Christ. Christ has risen from the dead, and this is a literal thing, not just symbol. Christ, Christ rose, so we'll raise. It's, there's, a, there's a realness to it, that we have something hopeful to look forward to, that we will rise from the dead. And the, the biggest thing we fear in the world is death, and we'll rise from the dead. That's, that's the point of the passage this morning. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm, I'm excited, so that's why I just jumped right into the point. I'm excited about this idea of resurrection. It's not Easter, but it's Sunday. And every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And so it's important that we understand what that means, why we value it, and, and the implications that flow out of this truth. I mean, we only have a few weeks left in 1 Corinthians. Look at, I was pausing so you could say, oh. Okay, yeah, some of you are disappointed. I hear that in the crowd. Um, I'm, I'm excited that we're coming to a close of a, a letter that's been so enriching in so many ways, but I'm, it's a bittersweetness for sure. There's, there's something about the way in which Paul addresses some of the issues in Corinth that resonates with us in this culture so far removed. And I, I hope that you have benefited as, as much as we have in the preparation, that we would be a body un, unified in these truths. That's the a, that's a purpose of this that we would be unified in these truths. Uh, and so when we look at this letter coming to a, a bit of a crescendo in chapter 15, uh, pointing to the foundational truth of the gospel that Jared walked us through the first eight verses, or sorry, 11 verses of this chapter. We're going to start in verse 12 in just a minute, but just, just, so, you, just so you see clearly um, in chapter 15 what, what he's getting at. He tells us just straight up in the beginning of it, Verses 1 through 3, I want to make clear to you, clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you. I want to make clear to you the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important, as most important, what I also received. And here it is, as simple as we can make it. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised. Christ died, was buried, and raised. And then he takes some time to really talk about what it means that he was raised. Again, addressing an issue in Corinth. Apparently, there's some people who don't believe Christians will eventually be bodily resurrected from the grave. And it's starting to creep its way into the church. They're denying that the saints of old, and that any Christians that are going to die will actually physically be resurrected. And this is likely due to some influence in the culture and the Greco-Roman culture. The philosophy said that the soul is what's important. The soul is what's good. The body is carnal. The body is evil. And, and therefore, death is a freedom from the prison that is the body. That's this philosophy that's creeping its way into the church. And so some, some of the Corinthian Christians are like, yeah, that kind of makes sense because I know my body. I know my flesh. I see the evil. I see the problems that we have within the church. It seems like it's all tied to this physical reality of the body. So maybe heaven is an escape from the body. Maybe there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead physically. And then they started teaching it within the church. And as it began to spread, uh, Paul was outraged by this. And in fact, he seems he seems totally shocked that they haven't considered the implications of this doctrine, this heretical doctrine. A denial of our resurrection means a denial of Christ's resurrection. And that's what he's going to get at. 
the security, the hope that we have in the gospel rests in the resurrection of Christ. It's all about the fact that he got out of the grave. The most basic understanding of the gospel, as it was just laid out, is that Christ lived, right? Then he died, he was buried, and he got out of the grave. He defeated death. Only one of these is totally supernatural. Only one of these is totally impossible. And because it's impossible, they dismiss it. But the fact that it's impossible doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. That's kind of the point of a miracle. He got out of the grave. He didn't stay dead. And it points to something for us. So we cling to this truth, this miraculous truth that Christ has been resurrected literally. Because if we, if we miss that, if we don't have that, then we're in trouble. And that's what he's going to explain. Resurrection is of primary importance. So when we talk about a hierarchy of doctrine or we try to make a pyramid of there's not very many at the top, but these are the most sacred. And then there's some that we can disagree on. And there's some that maybe you should go to a different church or belong to a different denomination. There's these ways of understanding doctrine we want to place in different areas. Resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ has to be primary. Now, Paul doesn't, doesn't jump right away to calling them heretics. In fact, he He knows that if you just call him a heretic, that condemns them. But instead, he dresses the heresy. The label heretic, I think, and and I think we should be cautious just flinging this term around. The label heretic is reserved for those who have a knowledge of truth and, and a maturity to understand the implications of that truth. And then they would take that heretical truth, loosely using the word truth, and authoritatively teach it. So that's a heretic. That's what a heretic does. Teaching heresy like it's true That is to say, we must condemn heretical doctrine, but then be gracious and patient with those who are presently ignorant of what's actually true, who maybe aren't considering the implications. And so Paul very graciously is going to walk through why the resurrection matters. And I say all that because I think it's crucial that we understand implications, they matter. Implications of bad doctrine is what matters. And I would assume everyone in this room, if I asked you, do you believe in the resurrection? If you're a Christian, you would say yes, right? I don't think anyone's going to like write a position paper on why bodily resurrection isn't true. You're not going to make a Facebook post about it even. Like you just, it doesn't even register that you would want to argue against that because it's so foundational to our faith. But the problem is a lot of people just say what they think they're supposed to say. A lot of people in our culture call themselves Christians when they're not. And a lot of Christians in our culture claim certain doctrine, even if they don't actually functionally live like they believe it. So if we really believe in the resurrection, not just have this concept, this idea that has to be true, otherwise I'll be a heretic and I don't want to be labeled a heretic. If we really believe in the resurrection, what does that change about our lives? Because the implications are what matter. If the implications of bad doctrine matter, the implications of good doctrine matter. In fact, we, we have a word for it. It's called fruit, good fruit. When we rightly believe truth, we produce good fruit. Right? So, if implications matter, it would behoove us to understand what these implications are. And I mention all of that because I'm more and more perplexed at the divisions in the church uh, around doctrine, around doctrinal issues. And I'm grieved by it because I don't want to see the church divided. And I know that there's heresy that must be condemned. But I would like us to be more gracious to our brothers and sisters who are believing heresy to call them to truth again and again because we don't really have the authority to condemn anyone. But call the heresy what it is. And and those who deny foundational doctrine as truth, 
and somehow, like with their mouths, they'll say, I don't believe it, and somehow their life seems to reflect they do believe it, is confusing to me. But so is those who profess right doctrine and will write down, this is exactly what I believe because this is true according to the word of God. And then functionally, their lives reflect that they don't believe it. So I don't know which one is worse, but I am resolved that we would fight to have both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, that we would be both right about our doctrine and right about our behavior that flows out of right doctrine. And I think the Apostle Paul would agree with me. I know, it's crazy to say, right? I agree with Apostle Paul. Let's just be honest. He was there first. So let's get into it. First Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 12. What are the implications of the resurrection? Or rather, for this, what are the implications of, of not believing in resurrection? Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul's starting an argument, so it's going to make a lot of sense because he's good at making arguments. And I'm going to read it like I'm making an argument because that's how he's writing it. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God. We're living a lie. We're telling a lie about who God is because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. First argument, he's making it clear, simple. We cannot have both. Either there is resurrection for everyone, including Christ, or no one, including Christ. Either Christ is alive or Christianity is a lie. It's imperative that we see the resurrection matters. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. So this word is like it sounds without purpose. Your faith has no effect. Your faith is foolish or stupid or untrue. You are still in your sins. If, there, if there's no physical resurrection, then there has been no spiritual resurrection. We've not been forgiven of our sin. Verse 18, those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. So this idiom, falling asleep in Christ, the, the saints who have died will never come back. We'll never be reunited with them. They'll never be with us in heaven because resurrection's not real. None of this is real. Verse 19, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. So this gospel message we proclaim, the gospel life that we strive to have, the, the gospel hope that we claim to have, the gospel centrality that the crossing church is all about, all of that is nothing without the resurrection. And we have, we have a patheticness about us. We're fools if we believe it, any of this. If any of this matters, if we're fighting to live a life holy and honorable, if we're, if we're fighting to, to hold up right doctrine, if we're fighting for justice, if all of that is pointless. All of, all of it is a waste of time. It's proving that we're pathetic. It's proving that we're apathetic. I mean, it's proving that nothing matters. Why should we care about anything if we don't care about the resurrection? Without the resurrection, we should be pitied above all. So to summarize the argument, if not for Christ's resurrection, our proclamation of truth is in vain. That's verse 14. Our faith is worthless. That's 14 and 17. 
We're lying about the truth of God, verse 15. We are still in our sin. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption, a.k.a. we're dead, verse 17. Believers who have died are lost forever. That's, there's no hope. That's verse 18. And then we who give our lives to Christ are to be pitied above all. That's verse 19. These things are true if we don't believe in the resurrection. Not just claim a belief, but actually believe. So belief is more than just what we think or say with our mouths. If we believe, it shapes our behavior. So right belief changes who we are and our behavior flows out of that. Therefore, if we aren't believing resurrection, all of this is a waste of time. And it's not in order that we modify our behavior, but it's for the sake of integrity of our ethics. It's, it's for the sake of freedom. It's so that we could actually have some truth that sets us free. It's so that death doesn't win. And Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Let's go to verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So this term, first fruits, the Old Testament term, first fruits, the, the ripened bundles of barley that were waved before the Lord in the temple. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. The, the, the harvest was coming, but the first fruits belonged to the Lord. So they were brought into the temple on the high holy day of Sabbath, of Passover week. We coincidentally call this day the day after the high holy day of Sabbath week or of uh, Passover week is Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. That's the Lord's Day. Passover came when Jesus was here. He was crucified and he was risen on Sunday, the first fruits of the harvest. So the purpose of this term first fruits, the first crop of the harvest being given to God is to show his ownership over the entire crop. It's the concept behind tithing. You give a portion of your first fruits. You give a portion to the Lord because all of it's his. So the implications of the first fruit is that there will be more. Jesus is the first fruit. Therefore, it's proof that a harvest is coming. There's hope for us because Christ was risen. We have hope that we too will be risen. He's been offered up to the Lord and we will belong to the Lord. He is the first fruits. We are the harvest. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is an already true thing for us spiritually, not yet physically. So this spiritual aspect we see very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and rise up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is an already accomplished spiritual reality for the believer. And we are awaiting this physical reality. This is a necessary time of waiting. God is using this time of waiting and, and once we were dead in our sin because of Adam, all have been given a sin nature, according to Romans 5, 12 through 14. The wages of sin is death, Romans 3, 23. In Christ, all have been affected by this grace and given life. That's Romans 5, 14 through 21. And this means all who will come and all going back to the garden, all who haven't existed, all who currently existed, and all going all the way back to Adam and Eve are covered by grace, somehow. 
Verse 22 is clear in saying, For just as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So we're not a church that believes in any form of universalism. I'm not saying everyone's going to be saved, because again, what's the point? Yet somehow all are dead because of Adam, and all will be made alive because of Christ. And I, I, I think that we can easily see all of this tied to the cross because it's the center of everything. So what we're speaking about here is not a saving grace or a, an atonement uh, that, that is for all, but because His atonement is particular for those who believe. It's clear elsewhere in Scripture. So when we're talking about all, we have this common grace that applies to all. So this too was purchased by Christ on the cross. It allows men, even atheists, to their dying breath, breathe. We, we have life. We have things to enjoy. There's goodness in the world that benefits everyone, even the unbeliever. This is all because of God's grace that was also purchased on the cross along with His grace that saves. Now this, this goodness available to all, all unbelievers ends when they die. However, all humanity will experience a resurrection. That's everyone. Except for Enoch and Elijah. I don't understand that one another time. But all humanity will experience a resurrection. All stand before God in judgment. Only some will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and they'll be welcomed in for eternal life. And some will be condemned to eternal punishment under the wrath of God. You can read about this in Daniel chapter 12 and in Matthew 25, verse 46. So all in Christ, all will be made alive. 23, but each in his own order. So there's an order to this being made alive. So this is where we get particular. Christ, the first fruits, which is the already, and afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So now we have the saints. Those, that's the not yet part of the gospel. There will come a time where we will experience this physical resurrection. Paul's laying this out for those who are saying we won't. It's clear if Christ was resurrected, he's the first fruits. There will come a time when we too will be resurrected. Verse 24, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. So Jared referenced Narnia last week. I don't reference Narnia a lot, but one of my favorite scenes in Narnia is there's this, this war going on, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the White Witch is, is turning everyone to stone, and it's really anxious part of the movie, especially if you're a child. Like, what are we going to do, right? Everyone is being turned to stone. What, there's no hope. Our kings are failing us. And then Aslan shows up. And it's not like this big fight and, and then the struggle continues and then somehow Aslan comes over and wins. It's just he shows up and she's dead. He just jumps on her. I wish they would have shown more, but it's kid movie or book. I mean, some of your readers. The, the witch is just gone and then he breathes life onto the statues and they come back to life, right? There's this picture here. Evil is not so much in the world. Satan is not so powerful that we don't know what we're going to do. Death has already been conquered. It's been left in the grave. Sin has no hold on us. 
There's this alreadiness about it because Christ has, victor- has been victorious over sin. He's got the victory. It's his. When he shows up, it's just over. And he locks up the beast and he breathes life. And death is once and for all abolished. Something to celebrate there, right? Amen. Unless you don't believe in the resurrection. And it's all pointless. Verse 27, for God has put everything under his feet. There's this picture in my head of Christ ascending into heaven. Just before the ascension, after the resurrection, he says, I have all authority. It's all mine. It all belongs to me. Everything else is underneath me. And God has put everything under his feet. There's this temptation here to go immediately to eschatology and try to think of, okay, well, the millennial reign is in here and you can, you can apply it that way. I'm just not going to rush to do that. This passage is about resurrection and I want to keep the main thing, the main thing without getting lost in the eschaton. So what's most clear here is that Christ rules over his enemies. He's finished the work in his crucifixion, in his death. He has finished the work and he has abolished the final enemy death in his resurrection. The tomb is empty. He is alive. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is his. Jesus is king. He's always been about his kingdom. His first sermon was about the kingdom. His last sermon was about the kingdom. And tons of parables in between were about the kingdom. It's here. It's now. It's working. It's moving. It's spreading. And he spoke about it as if it was an already kind of thing and a not yet future glorious consummation of things to come. And so I think it's, it's right for us to live in that tension. So when you're faced with the question over the dinner table that so many people want to talk about, are you a pre, post, or millennialist? I think it's okay to just say, I don't know. If you want to pick, then pick and then defend it. You can. You can. I've written defenses for all of these. Maybe. You can be like Scott and just say, I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. It's a dad joke. He says it all the time. Oh, man. It's okay to not know. He got it from his dad. So, you go. So, so we would do well to remember, instead of fighting over doctrinal things that are secondary, we would do well to remember the primary doctrinal things. The resurrection is assured because Christ is resurrected. And we would do well to remember the glorious truth that Jesus is king now. Our king will save us. It's sure. It's guaranteed We will belong to Jesus. We will spend eternity with him. And there are folks all around us still on the wrong side of his reign. So we can argue about eschatology, but I would rather proclaim that Christ is king to those who need to see and hear that Christ is king. And we testify of his goodness and we proclaim his gospel. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. This is a clarifying statement that's kind of confusing. A clarifying statement that he's using that we're not... We're not deconstructing the Trinity here. We're not trying to say something is that isn't. We're not unnecessarily making things separate. The Father is doing this ongoing work that Christ would be the king of everything. He's putting everything under his feet. That Christ, God, has become a man and 
subjected himself to servitude. He's humbled himself to, in being a man, but then even more so to serve men, not seeing himself equal to God, though he was. And then he gave himself up on the cross, suffering this humiliating death, naked for all to see. He breathed his last, last breath, went into the grave, and then on the third day rose. And God has exalted him. And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee bows. Whether they want to or not, they bow to the king. Because he has all authority. It's all his. And so he has been exalted by God. This is a beautiful picture of what's coming for us. That we are co-heirs with Christ. And we too will experience this resurrection and glorification. Another argument for the resurrection comes in verse 29. He's he's talking now from Christian experience. Just look around, he's saying. Just look at what you're doing. This is how you know the resurrection is real. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptizing for them? Duh, right? This is a weird verse. <laughs> it's okay to call the Bible weird sometimes. But to be, to, to be like as, as clear as it ca- I can be, an effort to, to have hermeneutical responsibility, or hermeneutical responsibility, uh, I will tell you, I have no idea what he's, he's talking about right here. Uh, there are a lot of interpretations of this. Um, there's not any other reference to it in anywhere in Scripture. There's not any reference to it outside of this, that the early church was practicing the baptism on behalf of the dead. Uh, it's a weird thing. There are some, uh, in particular the Mormon church, who take this illustration. As a side note, general rule, if you see an illustration in Scripture, don't apply it as a dogmatic doctrine. Just You're safe to not do that. But... This illustration has been applied as a doctrine by the Mormon church. They practice baptizing on behalf of the dead because they believe baptism is a work of salvation. So if they have a brother or sister who has passed, in order for them to get into the highest heaven, they baptize living people, not actual dead people. (laughs) That'd be really weird. They baptize living people on behalf of the dead one so that that dead one can get into the super Mormon heaven and, and have a planet. That's... Side note, we're not going to get into that because this is weird enough. All right, so what exactly is he talking about? Honestly, it's not incredibly clear, but we know that he is not, he's not prescribing a practice to the church. In fact, he doesn't even seem to be affirming it because he says what they do. Why are people baptizing for them? He's not saying what we do, um, but apparently this is happening in Corinth, and it could be just a symbol of honor for those who have passed on. It could be a lot of things. I mean, there's tons, if you want to research this, there's tons of explanations of this passage. But what's most important for our purposes is that Paul is using it as an illustration of the resurrection, that the resurrection is real. Otherwise, there would be this inconsistency with those who are apparently arguing against the resurrection and at the same time approving of folks being baptized for the dead. If you don't believe in physical resurrection, what's the point of even doing that, is what he's saying. So it's just this argument pointing out the inconsistency of those who are doing this, this strange practice. Is that clear enough? Or do we need more? Okay, I saw some nodding heads. That's good. All right, 
I just don't want to waste time on things that I really don't think are that relevant. I don't think anyone's going to struggle with this. Okay. So more to the argument from experience, verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's saying, if there isn't resurrection, what are we doing? Why are we risking our lives? There's a threat to those who proclaim to be Christian, but if we don't even believe this foundational truth of the gospel, why are we wasting our lives for this? Why are we sacrificing anything? Why are we enduring suffering? Why are we standing for the truth? Why are we fighting for justice? Why are we risking our reputation and our livelihood? Why are we holding up in our culture today? Why are we holding up these truths if the resurrection isn't real? Why are we fighting against a culture that would shame us and call us bigots if the resurrection isn't real? I mean, YOLO is what he's saying. It's, it's you live only once is this quote here. It's an Epicurean idiom. Let, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, live your best life. Live it up. Go party. You got nothing else to live for. There's no hope for anything else. Then this is all you get. This is the best life you have. The live, live it up. There's no hope if without the resurrection. Now, it seems that not only are they believing in this false doctrine, but it's affecting their morals. In fact, they are living immorally. They're living apathetically. And so he also writes in verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's another Greek quote, but this one's being used to emphasize truth. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses, literally sober up and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Now, it's a shame because we're talking about a a, a people who so deeply value knowledge, but they apparently don't even know God. Church, Jesus is alive, and that matters. It's what makes the gospel good news. We have a hope to be resurrected, and that matters because that robs any power that anything could have over us in this life. You can't take anything from me if you can't take my resurrection. I'm going to die, yeah, everyone's going to die, but I'll be resurrected. It's just, a, it's just a phase of life. There's hope for us because of the resurrection. So the resurrection is good news because he is the first fruit of the harvest. Verse 20, proof that will rise. The resurrection is good news because the curse of Adam is broken and we're not dead in our sin, verses 21 through 22. The resurrection is good news because all enemies are under the feet of our king, all of them, verses 24 through 28. And the resurrection is good news because we need not fear danger nor death. We can risk it all. We can sacrifice it all. In fact, we know God because of the resurrection and will never know death because of the resurrection. That's verses 30 through 34. So in application for us, belief in the resurrection affects our behavior. So we fight for it, not because I I think any of you are struggling with whether or not it's real. We fight for it because we must believe it. And our belief in it changes our ethics. It changes our evangelism. It changes our behavior. Our lives here matter. What we do matters. How you live matters. And this is not a place for waiting on eternity like you're at a doctor's office. 
Like you have to go to this appointment. You're sick or you, you have a fracture in your foot or whatever it is. You have to go and you have to suffer this waiting in the waiting room, reading these magazines you don't really want to read, this begrudging submission to this system because that's your only hope. You got to go wait on the doctor because he's going to heal you with his magic. I don't know why I said magic. It's not this, this idle, obligatory, begrudging waiting. It's, it's much more like waiting on something that you long for. It's much more like this anticipation of something beyond your imagination. It's going to be satisfying. It's going to give you peace and joy more than anything in this world could offer you. There's this waiting that we're doing, but we have hope in the waiting. October 24, 2010, I entered into a weird, already not yet phase of life. I took Amelia to El Chico's, RIP. Ah, those quesadillas, man. That's what I had that night. And she was dressed nice. I was dressed nice. It was my birthday, so we went to El Chico's. That was our first date, so I was like, let's go to El Chico's. That wasn't our first date. That's where we went for our first date. So then we, we went back to campus. I lived in the BCM at the time. Again, RIP, that building is gone, but there's a new one there. It's not the same. So we, we walked through campus. This is what we like to do. It's a nice breezy night. Uh, October 24th is always a beautiful day. It just always is. I don't know why. Something weird about it. And we make our way back to the BCM building, and we climb on top. You're not supposed to do this. Don't tell anyone. You climb on top of the building with the shed in the back. It's not there anymore, so you can't do this. The shed in the back, and you can hop up on the roof, and it's this nice flat part before the giant incline that's super dangerous. Anyway, the story's there. So I set out all these little tea light candles. that I, They're fake ones. You just click a switch. And, and then I had some sparkling grape juice because she really likes that. And, and she was like, oh, it's, it's your birthday. Why are you doing all this? And I was like, you know, I'm just romantic. And, and then I had this journal that I had written in all summer because I worked at a summer camp and I didn't get to be with her. And I, I wrote this journal to her all summer. And so I gave that to her. And then I, I said, oh, I have one more thing. And I took out of the bag that was stashed all the goods in a box with a ring in it. And she was like, whose ring is that? Like it's your ring. No, it's not. Who's ring it? Argument went on for a little bit. To this day, we argue about it. It's really your ring. I'm just kidding. So eventually, she was convinced. Okay, this is my ring. What does this mean? And I proposed, and entered into what we call engagement. Right. So this already not yet period of my life. Fortunately, we set a date, so I knew it was coming. Only five months away, and so in that period of time, awaiting this wedding day of what would come, this little bit mysterious, mysterious wedding day, <coughs> following this event, this engagement, I had hope for this wedding day. It was sure, not all engagements work out, but mine was going to. So there was this great hope for this day that was going to come. I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. I started working out more. I started getting in shape physically. I know you're thinking you were never in bad shape, Kendrick. Stop. Okay. I started getting in better shape physically. We started doing premarital counseling so I could get ready emotionally. And I started being much more intentional in the time I spent in the Word of God because I wanted to be a good husband and I needed to be well spiritually. And I devoted myself to something because I knew something was coming that I wanted to be ready for. Not only that, but I also stopped flirting. I was a bit of a flirt in college. Don't ask Jacob Hudson about it. He's here to just ignore that. I don't know why I told you to ask him not to ask him. Just don't. Anyway, I'm not who I was in college. 
So I put that behind me because I saw something, Amelia, who would be mine, and I want it to be hers, and I want it to be a good groom for my bride. And there was this waiting that was happening. And that waiting period changed my behavior. And this engagement, this event of the past, made me look forward to this mysterious, highly anticipated day of the future because our present is affected by the things that happened in the past and the things that we hope for in our future. So when we think about our spiritual resurrection in Christ and when we think about the physical resurrection of Christ, we have great hope to consider our future resurrection. Though you can't get your minds around it, we don't really know what that's going to be like. We we can't imagine what the presence of God will be like, what a, a body without sin, affected by sin, is going to be like. We can't imagine a world where, where sin and evil doesn't exist. We can't imagine a second without a selfish thought. Somehow that will exist and we can be greatly hopeful because it's for sure. And the hope that we have in it should affect our behavior, aka implications of believing in the gospel, implications of believing specifically in the resurrection. Now, I can't help but wonder How did the Corinthians get so far from this truth? How is it that they believe or claim to believe the gospel, yet refuse to believe this foundational truth of the gospel? Why would they not consider the implications? Now, no doubt it's because they took their eyes off of Christ. No doubt it's the same reason that we have this lack of love or the lack of unity that we've dealt with throughout this letter. No doubt, their problem is the same problem we have, and we're so often sidetracked by our pride, this exaltation of self, this this worship of who we are, our knowledge, our abilities, our self-righteousness is what matters. It's pride. It's pride that keeps us from love and unity and believing the gospel. It's pride that makes us feel entitled to our elevated opinion. It's pride that keeps us from being grateful for the grace of God. It's pride that robs us of a truth that sets us free. We think we know what we want. We think we know what we need. So we take it into our own hands, but it's that very thing that keeps us from getting what we actually need. It's pride that robs us of the hope that we have for the resurrection. Proud people don't look to God for anything because they think they have everything in themselves. We can do this individualistically and we can do this corporately. And the only freedom we have from it is the gospel. It is the gospel that gives life. It's gospel belief that fuels our lives. So what do we believe? Do we believe in the resurrection? Do we have hope in a future resurrection in such a way that it affects our present. We were dead, and now we're alive because Christ is alive. And we will one day have resurrected bodies because Christ has a resurrected body. He's conquered death. If pride robs us of hope and truth, then it is no doubt humility that ushers them in. And so let us humble our hearts as Christ humbled himself and hung on a cross. Let us submit our lives to our Father as Christ submitted his life to the Father. And think about who you are. Think about who you really are. You know you. Consider yourself. Think of the sinner you are, returning to sin again and again. Feel the hopelessness. Feel the emptiness there. And then feel that flushed out because hope is rushed in 
when you consider Christ and his resurrection. There's a weight lifted there because that's the work of the gospel. God has, for his purposes, chosen to make you his family, son and daughter. The Father calls you son and daughter because of the righteousness of Christ. I, Kendrick Banks, have been chosen by God to be crucified with Christ and no longer live, but have Christ live in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if I have been united with him in death like his, I shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the word of God. This is our hope. And we can put everything in it because of the resurrection. This is a reality that matters because the resurrection changes everything. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the truth that we can cling to, the hope that we have in it. Thank you for Christ and his death. Thank you for his resurrection. I pray that as we consider these things being out of our hands, but in yours, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude, that we would be grateful for your grace, that we'd worship you, and that we'd be hopeful for an eternal joy, an eternal satisfaction that can't be found here. Though we, we can imagine ways in which to find satisfaction in this world, though temporary, uh, I pray that you would show us it's worth the sacrifice because the resurrection is true. That we would lay down our lives because the resurrection is a reality. That we could go forth proclaiming your gospel, standing for what is right, because we don't fear death because of the resurrection that we consider all these implications, that you would stir in us an affection for you, that we would sing out praise to our glorious King, for you have conquered death. And we're grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.